All right, so this evening, we are going to be considering Psalm 139. So I ask you all to please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Now, it just so happens that uh, today, this Sunday, is actually... Uh, Biblical Sexuality Sermon Sunday. And this is something that began last year in Reformed Evangelical Circles because there was a bill passed in Canada which criminalized so-called conversion therapy, uh, which is essentially criminalizing proclaiming the gospel to people with same-sex attraction, people with gender dysphoria, proclaiming to them that that is sinful and that that's something that God can actually transform, that they need to repent of that and be transformed. That was criminalized last year in Canada. And so Reformed evangelical preachers last year used this Sunday uh, to proclaim God's good and beautiful and authoritative design for human sexuality. And that's something that they're trying to keep up every year. And it also happens that next Sunday is recognized as the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which, you know, as you guys are probably aware, marks the Roe versus Wade decision, which essentially legalized abortion in the United States. And even though that that decision's been overturned, Abortion still continues uh, rampantly in our nation. And so it's with both of those in mind, the um, biblical sexuality and the sanctity of human life, uh, with that in mind, we want to consider Psalm 139 because this psalm does beautifully speak to both of these issues. And both of these issues, as we are all well aware, are massive enemies right now of the church. Not only is there rampant wickedness and idolatry going on in our nation and among us, but it is a militant wickedness that seeks to silence the truth of God's word, that seeks to silence the uh, the proclamation of his gospel from faithful churches. And so it is essential that we stand up against this wickedness. And the thing is, you know, these, these two issues in particular, abortion and, you know, transgenderism and all that's gone on with human sexuality, they really highlight the depth of our culture's rebellion against God. And we know that as Christians, we're not the only ones who are standing up against this. You have, you know, conservatives and traditionalists or kind of like the generic people of faith, even common sense agnostics. There's, there's a lot of people who look at transgenderism and even look at abortion and say, well, you know, that's a little bit extreme. We shouldn't go that far. That's, you know, that's, that's not cool. However, while there's still enough of God's common grace on our nation that you have non-Christian people who are rejecting the most extreme forms of rebellion that are going on today, apart from the authoritative word of God, apart from the notion of God as the creator and the ruler of all things, there is no solid foundation for opposing wickedness. And we see this even in our culture. You know, you'll see, you know, so-called conservatives who who will say, you know, well, we don't like transgenderism. We don't want to do that on kids, you know, on minors. They shouldn't be going through these gender transitions. But if you're 18 and if you want to do that, then you should be free to do that. Or, you know, you have conservatives, Republicans, who are voting to enshrine into law same-sex marriage, as it is called, that 
it's evident that even though there might be some resistance to this very extreme forms of rebellion, it's a resistance that is fading fast or is constantly moving in the direction of secularism, wickedness, and rebellion. The only true foundation, the only standard for all truth, all law, all justice is the authority of God, the authority of God the Creator. And it's also the the fact that we live in the world as it has been created by God is the reason why human sexuality and the sanctity of human life and all of these things are even important because if we don't live in a world that was created and designed by a good, loving, gracious, faithful God, then what does it matter about all of these issues? Why not just go with the radical, hey, if it works for you, then do it? We live in God's world under God's authority. And so we must, we are compelled to stand against the wickedness of our day. And so with that, we'll read through Psalm 139. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are all of your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would please... Bless this proclamation of your word this evening. I pray that you would use it to equip us, to challenge us, Lord God, to bring us under the conviction of your spirit, and Lord God, to strengthen us for more and more faithfulness as we seek to live as your image bearers, as your servants in this world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 139 
This is a psalm of praise. It is a psalm of rejoicing. And what David is celebrating here is the absolute authority of God, is the perfect power, knowledge, presence, and glory of God. And so as Christians, if we desire to live in a nation and to see a world that is in submission to God the Creator, then we ourselves must make a habit of rejoicing in the glory and the authority authority of God, submitting ourselves to that authority. And it's worth mentioning that David wrote this psalm as the king of Israel, as one who was in authority under God, who had a, a ton of power over the nation of Israel, and he is rejoicing in God's authority over him, in God's knowledge, in God's presence, in God's rule over him. And the first six verses you have this rejoicing in God's perfect knowledge, that God knows us perfectly. He opens up with a declaration, oh Lord, you have searched me. And what he means there, it's, it's that, uh, the idea of studying carefully, not just observing, not just, you know, kind of taking note, but actually carefully watching, studying that person, seeking out all things that are hidden. And you can think of, uh, if you're a parent, your child, that you don't just kind of watch your child and observe them and, you know, kind of take note of what they're doing, but you study your child. You want to uh, know them, not just what they're doing outwardly, but you know kind of their thought process and you know uh, what motivates them and you know what, what's going to bother them, you know, things like that, that there's a deeper knowledge than mere surface level observation because there's that searching out, careful study that God has searched and known, become intimately familiar. Again, it's not as if this saying that God has, when he says, oh Lord, you have known me. He's not just talking about, you know, you're aware of me, you know what I'm doing, you're aware of my existence, but that God has an intimate knowledge, a deep familiarity, a comprehensive understanding that he again has sought out all things that are hidden. He knows us uh, in the depths of our being. He's intimately familiar with us. And this, it's interesting because the psalm is bookended with these declarations. He opens up, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then in the final stanza, he says, oh Lord, search me and know me. Continue to search me, continue to know me. We're going to talk about that at the end, but uh, just take note. It's interesting that this idea of God's studying, of his perfect observation, his perfect understanding bookends this psalm and really gives it its theme and its shape. And this declaration of David, that God has searched him and known him, it's not merely talking about David as an individual, but this describes God's perspective on all things, that there's nothing hidden from God, there's nothing unknown to God, that God has seen, discovered, he has perfectly understood all things, every one of his creatures, including us. We all have been searched out and known by the Lord. He goes on to every every action that we take. He said, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. There's nothing that we can do that's hidden from God. He sees every action of ours, even the smallest things that we do, God knows. 
He knows every thought. We're told, you discern my thoughts from afar. So even before we do an action, God knows our thought behind it. See, we are masters of deceiving others and even deceiving ourselves. We might uh, you know, do something or try to you know, make it look like we're being altruistic, make it look like we're being obedient, when in reality, in our heart, we're being self-centered or self-serving. God can't be fooled. God doesn't just merely see us outwardly. He discerns our thoughts. He knows every motivation behind every action that you have ever taken. Like, uh, like God says to Samuel when he's anointing David as king, God says, man looks on the outside, but God knows the heart. God looks at man in his heart. So he sees every thought and every intention. We're told also that even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Every word that we speak, and again, he knows our thoughts. So God knows before we even speak the words that we speak, what we're going to say. And he again knows the intention behind every word. How often do we try to fool people with our words? Do we say something with kind of a double meaning and somebody takes offense to it and say, well, that, I didn't say, you know, this is all that I said. God knows the intentions behind our words. He knows exactly what we're seeking to express. Jesus says that every idle word will be judged. God knows us so deeply that even before we speak our words, he knows them. And so for us, we can rejoice. Every prayer, every proclamation of the gospel, even if it's to one person, even if we're praying all by ourselves in the middle of the night, we know God hears those words and takes account of those. But at the same time, God knows every harsh word. He knows every slander. He knows every lie, even the tiniest little lies that we tell. God knows them. We're also told in verse 5, you hem me in behind and before, that God knows our boundaries. He knows the environment that we operate in because God set us in an environment. God has he, he knows our limitations. He knows how far we can be stretched. God knows... Uh, the, as I mentioned, the, the environment in which we operate. And so we hear all of these things of God's perfect and comprehensive knowledge of us, of all of his creatures. And the sad thing for us is that we're typically underwhelmed when we hear about this kind of stuff. You know, we're all very used to talking about, yes, God knows everything. Yes, God hears us. God sees us. God knows us. And it's almost, I don't know, old hat for us in some kind of way. You know, it's something, it doesn't, it doesn't floor us the way that it ought to. But if you look at David's response in verse 6, he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. That David, as he considers these things, this was too much for him. The thought of God's perfect, comprehensive intimate familiarity with him was beyond his grasp. It was beyond his capacity to understand or even his capacity to adequately praise him. He said, this is too high. I can't attain it. You can barely even put it to words. When you think about the perfection of God's knowledge, you it's hard to even describe it. Our praise, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, they're not adequate to glorify and comprehend God's depth of knowledge. 
And for us, we should be asking ourselves the question, even as we consider this first portion of the psalm, are we living as if this is true? Is this something that we just profess with our lips? Yes, God knows everything. Well, are you living your life as if God knows everything about you, your thoughts, what you're looking at, the things you say, the things you say to yourself when you grumble to yourself about God or about other people? Are you living your life as if God is truly aware of all things all the time and knows you better than you know yourself? See, when we think of these things, we shouldn't be underwhelmed by it or just move on past it, but rather we should respond with awe and with wonder and with fear and trembling before our God who knows us perfectly, before whom there is no secrets. So we see this rejoicing in the knowledge of God But the other thing about God is that he's not some distant omniscience. It's not as if God is a far removed deity who knows us, who sees us, who understands us, but isn't involved with us. Because the next portion of this psalm, David goes on to praise him for God's constant presence. He praises God for his presence. He says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? God is inescapably with us. And David uses extremes to kind of drive home this point. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, you're there. The highest heaven and the deepest grave. Either way, God is there with us. He doesn't just know that we're there, but he is present with us. Once again, this is one of those truths that we know and we say and we proclaim it, but it is deep and it is hard for us to wrap our minds around that God is there with us no matter where we go. He says that if I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, you can picture being in the middle of a vast ocean where you can't see anything but ocean all around, the most isolated location imaginable. He said, even there, you're with me. Even the darkness is not dark to you. Again, you can picture that darkness like how it was in Egypt, you remember, with the plagues, when it's so dark you couldn't see two feet in front of you, and you can feel so alone in something like that. But he says of God, even the darkness is like light with you. No darkness can separate us from the presence of God. There is no depth of of isolation, of darkness that can separate us from the glorious presence of God. And so for us, for God's people, for Christians, the reality of his omnipresence is a source of extreme comfort to us, right? We love to think about, yes, God is with us. He is with us everywhere we go. There is no place where we can be apart from him. We love that. We delight in him dwelling with us because we know that we were created to dwell with him. If you are saved, if you know God, if you have been born again, then you know that you were created for the purpose of dwelling with God. And so we rejoice and take heart and take comfort that we dwell with him. And we also know that God's dwelling with his people is something that's unique and special. 
You know, we can think about the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God had that physical dwelling place among the people of Israel or the glory cloud that filled it, that visible, physical manifestation of God's presence among his people. And even today in the New Covenant, we are filled with God the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells within his people. That's a special manifestation of God's presence. But, I'm sorry, There's that special manifestation of God's presence. Uh, We know, for instance, even in the Old Testament again, when the people would go off into battle, God's presence, his special presence was with them. In Joshua chapter 1, before they're going into the promised land, God says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous and do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's that special manifestation of God's presence among his people. God going before going with his people as they seek to do battle and to proclaim his word. Jesus said the same thing at the Great Commission. He said, go and make disciples. Behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. That special presence of God among his people. David, writing this psalm, he knew of this presence. We're told in 1 Samuel 16, when David is anointed king, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. When it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, it's not saying that at that moment David was born again or David was regenerated, but that David was specifically and specially equipped by the presence of God's spirit to execute the office of the king. So there's that special presence of God. But what's being talked about here in Psalm 139 is a little bit different. It's more general. It's not talking just about God's special presence with his people, but the kind of presence by which God governs all things all the time through providence. That's the omnipresence of God that we talk about generally, that God is constantly and at all times at work in creation, causing things to happen. He is uh, directly involved with his creation. Psalm 104 reads like this. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide their face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. What David's talking about there, the psalmist in Psalm 104, what he's talking about there is not... He's talking about the normal functioning of the created world. He's talking about animals eating and grass growing and rain falling. And what's he saying? That you, God, are behind all these things directly, not in some derivative sense, but that directly God is behind all the workings of providence. He is the one causing the grass to grow. He causes the rain to fall. He feeds the animals. He causes the world to keep on turning, causes the sun to rise and causes it to go down. God is active in creation at all times. He is present through his providential work. And so the natural functioning of the world, just the the created world doing what it does, testifies to God's presence in it and through it, that God truly does fill all in all. 
And see, it's interesting because God's special presence in many ways kind of amplifies or pulls back the curtain of God's kind of more general continual presence. That special presence of God with his people often amplifies what God is always doing in the world through providence. You can think of that example in Joshua when God said, I will be with you in the battle. I will give you victory. God, in a special way, present with his people, ensuring their victory. But we also know that in any battle, you know, you can think of in Isaiah when God's talking about sending Assyria to go and conquer the Israelites, that he has given Israel into the hands of Assyria. He has given Assyria victory, that God is present there working out his purposes by providence, even though the Assyrians and the pagan nations don't know it. Does that, does that make sense? C.S. Lewis gives a good example of this in his book, God in the Dock. He talks about Jesus as the perfect example of the special presence of God, right? God actually dwelling among us, but exposing and revealing that continual providential presence of God. So C.S. Lewis uses as an example when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he takes that loaf of bread and causes it to multiply miraculously and instantly. And you see there God the Son uh, circumventing the, the usual way, the usual natural laws, right? But who's the one who takes a seed planted in the ground and causes it to spring up and multiply and to be more than what you first planted, right? That God in his providence in the world designed for that seed to grow and to multiply, just like how Jesus instantly and in a miraculous way caused the bread to multiply and it showed that Jesus is that hand behind all providence. That's what we're talking about, that yes, the special presence of God kind of gives us a a magnified view of what God is doing through providence at all times as he is present in the world over all things. This is the kind of presence that Paul is talking about in Romans 1 when he says that the, uh, the, the power and glory of God are obvious in the creation, and so it leaves all people without excuse that we are, we are all compelled and required to glorify God because we see his presence in all of creation. And so this combination of God's perfect knowledge and of God's constant presence indicates God's complete authority over all things as creator. In verse 13, David begins to use the imagery of the womb to kind of drive home this point. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. David, using that imagery of the womb, and we can think of Uh, it's easy for us to think of God in kind of the broad context. Yes, God is the creator. We know that. But what David's talking about here is intimate and personal. That God isn't just kind of the general creator of all things, but God is the creator of us. God is the creator of you. That God directly, personally, intimately created you. And so we're called to focus on him in this intimate sense of how God made us. And just as God is behind all providence all the time and and, and everything that happens in creation, 
So also God is behind the formation of new human life in the womb. You have this picture of God, that intimate presence of forming and knitting, crafting together this new human life that did not before exist. And here, David puts together the perfect knowledge and the perfect presence of God when he says, that your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. That before we even physically were detectable, before our physical existence, God saw us. God was forming us. God had days ordained for us. He has known us perfectly even before our own existence. And then we see again God present and active in the womb, that he is planning and executing this plan for our lives. He is there forming us, with us, even in that secret place of the mother's womb. And so the reality of God, as as David's driving home this point, that God is the creator of every single individual, this reality testifies to his perfect authority, that he makes us, he determines our days, and so we owe him perfect and complete obedience, that our life is from God and for God. We owe him to submit to his authority. Please turn over to Isaiah chapter 45. And this is when God is condemning the false gods. He's condemning idolatry and putting them all to shame, establishing himself as the only God. Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 7, we read, I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? See, God here is establishing his perfect and complete authority. He is establishing that all creation owes him their existence and so owes him obedience. And he uses that example of a child saying to his father, what are you begetting? Saying to his parents, what have you made? It's foolishness for a created thing to rebel against the hand that made it. That's what God is highlighting in Isaiah. And that's what David is uh, communicating here in Psalm 139, that God created us. He knows us perfectly. He is with us always. And so it is absolute foolishness to rebel against our God. We should understand that from this Psalm, who knows us intimately, the God who is with us always, who has authority over us, how ridiculous it is, how futile it is to rebel against this God. And again, as Christians, we rejoice in all of this. Like David said in verse 17, how precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of your thoughts. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. We with David rejoice in understanding the presence of God, the power of God, the knowledge of God, and the authority of God. But for as much joy that we derive from that, 
In the same way, the unrighteous, the wicked, to them, this reality of God's presence and knowledge and authority is an inescapable nightmare. See, God's people, we love to be in the presence of God. But for the wicked, they are desperate to be away from God. You can think of Adam and Eve when they sinned. What did they do? At first they hid from God, and then they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves to hide themselves from God. Or in Revelation chapter 6, speaking of the judgment, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and calling to the mountains and rocks, they said, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The wicked are desperate to be away from God's presence. They desire a covering. They know, the wicked know, that they're in rebellion against their creator. They know that they have sinned against him, that they are shameful and guilty. And so they desire to be covered from God. David understood this impulse as well. In Psalm 51, after his sin against God with Bathsheba, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. He desires God to hide himself from his sin. But David also understood that the only covering for sin comes by repentance. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David understood the way to dwell in the presence of God, if we are to rejoice in his presence and not seek to hide ourselves, the only way is for repentance. The only way is for that covering, the righteousness of Christ to be upon us. But the wicked refuse to repent. The wicked reject the gracious covering from God. And so the wicked not only seek to hide themselves from God, but they also seek to remove God from their presence. Psalm 2, they, uh Aaron preached on this last month. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and let us cast away their cords from us. Not only do the wicked seek to hide themselves from God, but they want God to be away. They want God to be cast off. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the fool says to himself that God doesn't see, that God doesn't have understanding. They hate the presence of God. They hate the knowledge of God. And this is the very spirit behind abortion, behind the sexual revolution, behind transgenderism and all the wickedness that we're observing in our day today. If you think about abortion, pregnancy and birth are a picture, a beautiful picture of God's authoritative, creative work. They are a picture, uh, they are a reminder of God's sole authority as the creator. Again, the language of the psalm, it, uh, it depicts this intimate, active, personal work on God's part. And it kind of reminds us of God in the garden when he picked up the dust from the ground and formed the man and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and created Adam in his own image. That's kind of the imagery you get here in Psalm 139 of God forming and weaving and knitting and breathing into this new life. 
God exercising his sovereign authority to create in his image, even within the womb, actively bringing a new creature into existence who formerly was not there. It's God and God alone who does that. And so no matter our attempts to plan, to exercise our will, to try to, uh, to try to control situations ourselves, no matter what, it is only God ultimately who can create that new life. He alone has the authority as the creator. But for people who are consistent in their war against God, this is intolerable. This assault on their autonomy cannot be withstood. They hate being reminded of God's authority. They hate the fact that it's God and not they who get to create life, who chooses to create life. Only God does that, and they hate that they don't get to do that. They hate that God asserts his authority over them, and so they seek to get rid of his authority. They seek to assault God's authority. And so abortion is not only murder, but it is an assault against God. It's acting out against his authority from people who can't stand the fact that God is the creator and they're not. Abortion scorns God's unique work of creation. It scorns God's creative power. It is an escape from the constant presence of God that David is here uh, articulating. Because pregnancy, it reminds us, you know, no matter where you are, no matter uh, if it's a, a Christian woman in a church rejoicing in God that she's pregnant and giving birth, or whether pregnancy and birth happens in a remote island with someone who's never heard the name of Jesus, no matter what, that is a picture of God's authority, of God's creative power, of God's work in the world, that that woman is the vessel that God uses to bring this new life into the world. The womb is the theater of God's work of creation. It is. The womb is that, it's the landscape, it's the setting that God chooses to do this glorious and magnificent work. And so wherever this occurs, it is a testimony of God's providence, of his presence, of his glory, and of his authority. But transgenderism, like abortion, scoffs at this. We all see the headlines and the language that's used of pregnant men who are chest feeding their babies and a man can be a mother and things like that that just absolutely makes a mockery of this glory that God has bestowed upon women to be the vessels and the theater of his work of creation. It's an incredible thing and the reason behind that, the reason why they mock that and they scoff at that and they have to get rid of that is because they can't stand the fingerprints of their creator on them. They can't stand being reminded that God created this world with a particular order to function in a particular way for his purposes and for his glory. And so they seek to make a mockery of it. And they seek to say, no, God, not your design. We are going to take control of this. It's going to be according to our design. It's spiritual warfare that's going on. And these are just a couple of examples, but very Prescient examples of this futile yet diabolical attempt for rebellious man to flee from the presence of God, seeking to erase the authority of God in their lives. I know it's getting a little bit long, so I'll wrap up quickly. (laughs) I see the clock. (laughs) 
We have to, I can't end it there because we have to end with how do we respond as Christians. So pretty quickly, we'll look at uh, verses 19, 19 through 22 because it's a little bit jarring, right? Like, you know, we love this psalm and we love, you know, you knit me in the womb and you know, we, we, we just, we love to quote it. But then all of a sudden, verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. And so for us, it's, uh, it's important because we shouldn't just observe the problems in our culture. We need to know how to fight them. And so we can look at David's response to his own enemies and we can glean something from that. David here, he talks about men of blood. They're violent people in rebellion against God. Um, they are, he says that they, they speak against God with malicious intent. They take his name in vain. So these are you know, rebellious sinners, people acting out in violence against God. And David says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as enemies. So first, it's important that we understand this in its own context, first and foremost. I want to give us a, you know, quick way to kind of grasp and understand and apply this. So understand first that David is writing this as king. And so as the king, David was commissioned by the authority of God to wield the sword of justice, to uh, protect his people, and to execute God's judgment on the wicked. First and foremost, so David has authority to actually literally wage war on the enemies of God. And he's calling on God here to bring judgment onto these wicked people. So first understand that, that David, yes, he is fighting literal war and he is uh, permitted and given authority from God to do that. But we also have to understand these portions of the Psalms eschatologically in light of what Christ has done with an eye towards what Christ ultimately will do. And so we know that while David was the king writing this psalm, that the true king is Christ Jesus. That he's the king who is currently and who finally will subdue every single enemy. Yet we know from Jesus' earthly ministry that he came as the king to subdue his enemies, but he came not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the radical thing of the gospel that Christ subdues his enemies by redeeming them, by making them new creatures in Christ Jesus. He conquers the wicked by taking them and making them into the righteous. That's how Christ conquers. And this isn't, I'm not making a case at all for pacifism or anything like that, but for our context as Christians, as we're seeking to discern how we fight against the evil of our day, We need to understand the work of Christ and how Christ is conquering the wicked for himself and for his glory. Just as David has had authority as the king to go to wage warfare and to conquer the enemy, so we, as priestly kings in Christ, right? We are a royal priesthood. We have been given authority from God to go and to conquer with the gospel, to go and to conquer God's enemies with the good news of the work of Christ Jesus. And so our response to this wickedness, first of all, it should be a total hatred of the wickedness. David says, I hate them with a complete hatred. We make no compromise. We don't try to find a middle ground. We don't go and meet them halfway. 
but we stand firm with complete hatred of the vile, wicked, bloodthirsty, violent sins that are being committed around us. But it also must provoke us to action, not the action that David's taking to go and actually literally wage war, but the action to go and to address sin boldly and courageously with the sword of the Spirit, right? With the word of God, with the gospel, that we are bold and courageous to do so, that we don't shrink back from the battle, that we actually go forth and engage with the enemy as we bring forth the claims of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his reign and rule over all. And so we ought to be crying out to God to decisively deal with this sin. We ought to be crying out to God to, uh, to, to conquer this enemy that's risen up against him and against his people at this time. We also need to be ready, though. If we're going to cry out for that, we need to be ready for the pain because you don't sin the way that our nation has sinned for as long as our nation has sinned. You don't get, to get out of that without a lot of pain. So we need to be prepared for the way God is going to deal with us. And so we also need to be warning God's enemies that there is a day of judgment coming, that this behavior, the way that the world is working right now, the way that the wicked are carrying out their schemes, it's not going to last long. It can't last long. God is going to bring judgment. There is judgment coming. And we need to desperately call for the wicked, the only means of escape, to be covered with the righteousness of Christ, to repent of wickedness, and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be covered in him. And so we go forth and we fight the good fight and we do it fully confident in Christ's victory. And the very last thing that I will mention, the last couple of verses, David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in life everlasting. If we are to really with David, rejoice in the omniscience and the omnipresence of our God, then we need to deal with our own secret sin. If we are to fight the good fight of faith, we need to do it with integrity. God knows us. He knows everything about us. So we need to say to God, God, search me and know me and expose my sin so that I may repent of it and actually fight with integrity to actually engage as one who is repentant of my sin, who is repenting of my sin every single day and engaging with the enemy on that ground. Because if we're harboring secret sin, if we're living our lives saying, yes, we trust God and we love Jesus and God knows everything, and yet we are secretly in in the darkness cherishing up sin in our hearts, we're not going to be effective. We won't have the integrity to stand on. And so we say with David, search me, O God, know my heart, know my thoughts. The presence of God, the knowledge of God, it shouldn't scare us. It should cause us to rejoice and proclaim God's glorious authority and trust that he is furthering his kingdom by his authority and by the work of Christ.